Welcome to all an audience of this message. This is David Thompson from the Fraser Valley in British Columbia. For those of you that are new, I just want to briefly explain that I am here seeking to speak what God would want to be saying to the body of Christ around the world and also to you as an individual who in the foreknowledge of God has come to a place here where you happen to be hearing this message. Part of what I do in regards to this is I seek for God to lead me to a particular chapter of Scripture each day of the week except usually on Sunday. And then I meditate on that chapter for a half hour, which includes the taking of notes, and then immediately after, I preach a message, trusting the Holy Spirit to give me the words to speak. And sometimes it seems like there could be nothing possible that would come out of a passage of Scripture if it seems to be uh, something that's very straightforward and simple or short and brief. However, God always is able to work when we give him room to work instead of having our own program that we put in the way that hinders the Spirit of God from coming forth out of us. The Word of God does say in Second Peter chapter 4, if any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. So we are to seek to do this, to allow the Spirit of God to rise up out of us so that we are not speaking our own words, but those words that are coming by the Holy Spirit. That's basically what the spirit of prophecy is. Well, that's just a brief introduction. I often use the casting of lots before God to be led to a particular scripture. And that's another big topic, but it's very scriptural. If your life is holy, you're not doing it as a game. Then the spirit of God will use such things to guide to the proper passage of scripture. That does not negate the fact that God can lead in other ways, and he does many times with me as well. But I find he often uses this, and there's nothing wrong with taking a verse for a day, and you don't know what it is. The same in regards to this, but I acknowledge the sovereignty of God in it, and have faith in the sovereign power of God, who is attached to every particle of existence with his omniscience, and is able to bring all things together for his purposes that may seem like coincidence, but are not. Okay, today I received 1 Corinthians chapter 1. So first of all, I will read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sothenes, our brother unto the church of God which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ that in everything ye are enriched by him, in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, 
so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Shalom, that there are contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I of Apollos, and I of Cephas, and I of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you, or were ye baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you but Crispus and Gaius lest any should say that I baptized in mine own name. And I baptized also the household of Stephanus besides. I know not whether I baptized any other. For Christ sent me not to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of none effect. For the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. Where is the wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the disputer of this world? Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. For the Jews require a sign. And the Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified unto the Jews a stumbling block and unto the Greeks foolishness. But unto them which are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For ye see your calling, brethren, how that not many wise men after the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, are called. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty. And base things of the world, and things which are despised hath God chosen, yea, and things which are not, to bring to naught the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom, 
and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. Excuse me as I take a drink of water. I always tend to get a dry mouth after reading a chapter for some reason. At the beginning of the message and then later on I'm fine. Hmm. This passage, Paul is addressing the Corinthians. And we know from this book of Corinthians as well as the second book of Corinthians that the Corinthian church had a tendency to be carnal. To have a mindset that was oriented towards the natural world and the present order of things which is based upon the principles that are governed by a destructive foundation, which I will explain, of course, far more as I go into this message. And in this particular passage, there is an emphasis on wisdom and on the power of God and that that source is in Christ. And that even in presenting the gospel, there is the danger of presenting it in a way that takes away from the true wisdom and the true power of God. And this is, of course, mentioned in a particular verse here in this passage. I'm just going to um, go down to that passage of Scripture if I can spot it. I believe it's probably around verse... Um, I am not sure if I can just spot it right now, but um, for the verse 18, for the preaching of the cross is to them that perish foolishness, but unto us which are saved, it is the power of God. But Paul also emphasizes the danger of preaching the gospel in a way that takes away from a focus on the gospel. And that particular verse, the theme verse, I... Sometimes do put in my notes, but in this case, I got a scam or, or skin, skim for it. So I'm just uh, taking a quick look here. But it basically says that he did not come to preach with the enticing words of man's wisdom, lest the preaching of the cross would be made of none effect. And in the beginning of this chapter, in verses 1 to 3, we have a very significant introduction in which we observe that the local assembly of churches in a city is recognized to be those that are living holy lives and are called to be holy. But it also includes those that struggle to enter into a life of holiness that call from their heart on Jesus Christ. To all of those, Paul pronounces God's grace 
and his peace in verse 3. In the hour that we are living in, there is not an understanding in the body of Christ where even leadership addresses the church as those that are saints, those that are living holy lives and distinguishes them in the church from those that have not entered in to a place where they have been brought into a life of holiness but are still struggling with the temptations of this world. There are many today that teach that, oh, you can't be perfect. You can't live a holy life. We all are imperfect. But this is not a teaching that we find in the Word of God. Counterwise, we find that the Word of God teaches and commands us to be perfect. Yes, I have an understanding of the Greek word, that the word perfect has the understanding of coming to a place of maturity, a place of completeness, where, as the word of God says, we are perfect and entire and want nothing. But this is a place of holiness. This is a place where we have struggled. We have come through the struggles into a place where, as the word of God says, we know the truth and the truth sets us free. As Christ said, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It is a process of entering into a place of wholeness and liberty with God. And that process involves going through trials in which there is temptations and coming out of those trials through a life of prayer and trust in God, where we are purified and brought out of the deceptions that are in our lives. These temptations that we experience, all of us as believers, does a purifying work in our lives, as it says in Peter don't think it's strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you. It says we're to rejoice in tribulations knowing that it works within us, the virtues of godliness. Basically, that's what it says. I'm summing up 1 Peter chapter 1, the beginning of that chapter. I believe it's 1 Peter, not 2 The pressure of trials brings the dross of the, that is in the gold to the surface. And when the dross comes to the surface, we see the things and the deceptions in our life that we didn't know were there. When we're under the pressures of trials, we can react negatively. We can become angry. We can have things come out of us that we never knew were in us. And then we see the ugliness that we didn't know was in us exposed. But when we have a relationship with God, we then cry out with all our heart, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Forgive me, Lord. Cleanse me through your blood. I am abhorrent of these things that I didn't know were in my life. And we cast them off as a filthy garment in true circumcision of the heart and repentance with a greater recognition of the greatness of God's mercy that he could even forgive us and cleanse us of such things that were in our lives. And so we come into a greater appreciation 
of the mercy of God and therein of the love of God to us in our personal relationship with him. It's like the woman that wiped the hairs of her head. With tears she wiped Christ's feet in appreciation for him showing mercy to her and forgiveness. And the woman that broke all of her wealth that she had earned for the year that was a year's worth of living in that alabaster box. And she broke it at Christ's feet in appreciation and thankfulness. And so it is that our hearts need to know what it is to be broken before the love of God that is seen in his mercy to us, that is seen in his atoning work on the cross, which is the emphasis in this passage. It is on the cross of Christ. Christ in his atoning work to us personally. And so we come into a place where we come through our struggles and trials to enter his rest. As it says in the word of God, after ye have suffered a while, he will strengthen, establish, and settle you. Word of God says that those that are of God come to the light, that they might have their deeds manifest, whether they are out of God or out of themselves. And the Word of God also says in Hebrews chapter 4 that we are to labor to enter the rest. For there is a rest for the people of God. And he that has entered that rest has ceased from his own works, that is, his own self-initiations of his own will in independence from God. He has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Now, did God have his own self-initiations that were out of a destructive principle? No. But it is a paralleling the Lord's delight in the finished work of his creation with us entering into a relationship with him where we delight in the relationship that we've found in him that has come out of those things that were not finished or refined through the process of sanctification in trial. So we have a fellowship and an intimacy with God. Now this comes out of being brought out of the deceptions of our own self-initiated ways of independence and rebellion against God that are so deceptive and veiled that we're not even aware of it, but are exposed through the trials. It comes as through the trials of life, we learn to abide in God. As Christ said, abide in me and I in you. For, the brand, for without me, ye can do nothing. Our ways of independence of God are filled with futility and result in fruit that does not last or remain. 
It is coming to the place of learning to do things out of a relationship of intimacy with God that results in fruit that remains. And that requires coming to a place where we are perfect and entire, wanting nothing as the word of God describes in James. And in the context of that chapter in James, it says that we seek not the wisdom of this world, but the wisdom that is from God for every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights with whom there is no variableness nor shadow of turning. You see, coming into a place of true fulfillment, of abundance of life that is truly satisfying, is only when we find what is ultimately real. Only reality could satisfy the very core of our being because God is the very reality of all things and the source of all things. And his name even means reality. The Christ said, I am that I am. God describes himself in the Old Testament, as I am that I am. In Hebrew, it means ahiyah, asher, ahiyah. I am. Asher meaning which? I am. The self-existent one is the naming name of Yahweh. Yahweh. Also called Jehovah which is very close to another word in the Hebrew, which is ahava, which means love. And the word of God is very clear in 1 John that God is love. Now, I'm wanting to drive home a particular point here, that we go through a process where we enter into the rest of God or come into a place where we know the truth in such a way that we're truly set free. That freedom, that liberty is an experience of wholeness in our inner being where we are aware of the indwelling reality of God that brings a satisfaction to the core of our being that causes us to be perfect and entire, wanting nothing, as it describes in another scripture. Perfect and entire, wanting nothing. It is out of holiness that comes wholeness. Because holiness is the quality that can only contain wholeness. And it is out of that wholeness that shines forth beauty, that is truly beauty, that is lasting. In relation to beholding the beauty of God, King David said, One thing have I desired, and that will I seek after, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. And he, there are many verses, such as ones that say, worship God in the beauty of holiness. Beauty issues out of holiness. And the transition out of holiness is wholeness onto beauty. Beauty is the manifestation of wholeness, where there is no destructibility within one's being, but only life. Reality 
is that which is filled with life and has no corruptibility in it, no destructive principle in it. It is a quality that can contain unlimited life and unlimited power, and that is only found in God. Unlimited in life and unlimited power that is everlasting and ever enlarging. Because God is love, a love that is so pure and has such ultimate integrity that it is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest word, thought, or deed that would be contrary to it. This is the holiness of God. It is the defensive aspect of the love of God. The love of God is that quality in God that out of total self-origination, that is freedom of choice, chooses always the lastest, the highest lasting good over any more immediate temporal choice of satisfaction that would be less and therefore would contain an element of corruptibility. It is far more than a feeling. It is a choice to choose the highest lasting good, a true free choice, not be, to do it out of some outward input like a robot. God didn't make us as robots. You cannot define love to be more than what I just define it. And if you defined it in any other way, it would be less than what I just defined love to be. Love is a quality that is totally self-originating in free choice to always choose the highest lasting good that is ever enlarging over any more immediate choice that as such would be less than the highest good and have corruptibility in it. That is who God is. And the integrity of his love will never be violated. That is why he is a blazing fire of judgment against the slightest that would be contrary to his love. And that is the foundation that I will give to emphasize the cross, which is an emphasis on the atoning work of God in himself, in the full expression of himself, into this time and space realm, which is his Son. For Jesus Christ is the full expression of the Father, and the word Son means expression. I will briefly explain for those that may not be from a background that has an understanding of God that is the true understanding of God, that we do not believe in three gods. There is only one God, as it says very clearly in the word of God, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. But God must govern the ultimate aspects of existence, which are to be beyond time and space, to govern in time and space, and to govern filling all space. As the Father, what does the Father speak of? It speaks of the originator. It speaks of one that has had great experience through time, of one that sees the end from the beginning that is beyond the time and space realm. So God, to govern beyond the time and space realm, must be in personage in that realm and as such is in government the Father. 
only one God. For God to govern in his creation, he must be fully expressed into his creation and personage and govern in personage within the time and space realm. If he wasn't in personage within the time and space realm, he would have nullified his powers, God to govern within the time and space realm. So God must be in personage within the time and space realm. And so as God, he is fully expressed into this time and space realm, which is described as the government of God in the Son. The Son is the fullness of God expressed into the time and space realm. The, the word Son means expression because the Son is the full expression of the Father into the time and space realm. And so God governs his creation, relates to his creation, experiences their pain, their suffering, identifies with his creation. And his creation has the opportunity also to have focus and fellowship with God through the Son in the time and space realm of government. And God also by his spirit fills all things, fills all space. His presence is omnipresent, attached to every particle of existence in total all-knowingness or omniscience in fellowship as the Father and as the Son in omnipresence as the Holy Spirit. And so we have an understanding that there is only one God in three personages, which are the three dimensions the Father beyond time and space, the Son in time and space, and the Holy Spirit filling all space. And within this triunity, there is a selfless interaction of fellowship so that the Son is always enlarging out of appreciation as he gazes on the Father and the glory of the Father he is enlarged to interact with the Father in oneness with the Father. And I will not get into that right now, or I'll be talking and a bit too sidetracked from this particular message. What I'm emphasizing in this first part of this chapter is that true liberty, true fulfillment comes when we come to the place where we are perfect and entire, wanting nothing. Or will we, in other words, in another scripture, where we know the truth and the truth sets us free because we come to the awareness of what the truth is. And this particular chapter is describing how and what the source of that awareness is. It is ultimately crystallized and expressed in the atoning work of God in Christ on the cross. And I was describing the integrity of God's love, that is the holiness of God, as a foundation which represents the negative symbol in electricity and also represents a foundation. It also represents cutting off all that is contrary to love. We have been given our own free will. Without it, there is not the capacity to love, but therein is the potential of hell. And God's purpose and all of this is to bring forth a corporate bride that is brought back into harmony with his love out of one's own free, individual free will and corporately 
he will bring forth his bride as well. That is the ultimate purpose in all the suffering and all the stuff that is going on throughout history is to bring forth this ultimate purpose of a corporate bride that is the perfection of government without corruption that will rule throughout the universe, ever enlarging in creativity that goes without end, in intimacy out of fellowship with God, which undoes every tendency towards corruption and disorder by being brought through a process that causes an immunity to corruption through what we are going through in this present time, where we are coming out in our individual lives of being unraveled from self-deception of independence in our own ways from God and learning the greatness of his love in the process, coming into a place of total liberty, and of wholeness and of fulfillment and of abundance of life so that we can be in the most adverse circumstances of trial and suffering and know the presence of God that can bring us through it. In other words, we can be literally tortured to death and martyred and the power of God will raise us from the dead, whether it be immediately or in the hereafter. Christ said, whoever believes in me shall never die. Though he were dead, yet shall he live. Because the moment your outward shell drops off, you're in the presence of God in a beautiful place that you'd never want to come back to this world because the comparison is not even possible to describe in contrast. The word of God says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man what God has prepared for them that love him. But God has revealed those things to us, it says, by his Spirit. And in this passage of Scripture, I want to emphasize that when people do not teach that we have, by God's grace, the power to live a holy life, to enter into a place of perfection where there's liberty and fulfillment and abundance, they are teaching what is contrary to the word of God, because it is very clear in the word of God. It says in the last day there will be many. Last days there will be many. They will claim to be godly, but they will teach, on, but they will live in an ungodly way and deny the power of God to live a holy life. There is the power to live a holy and a perfect life before God. We are commanded to be perfect and to walk before him and be perfect. Abraham was commanded to walk before him and be perfect. Christ gave the same command. It is the understanding of being perfect and entire wanting nothing so that we are not manipulated and controlled by the temporal baits of this world in a path that results in our own pain and suffering as a result of our own choices that are destructive because they are not coming out of God. But even those choices are used to corner us to the place of tribulation and trial where we have nowhere else to turn but to God and find him in the process like the prodigal son going his own way even though in type, he represents those that have been brought up as 
in a church or as part of the people of God. That is not only individually, but as we see many times Israel described corporally as a people who went astray, a bride that became a prostitute. It is interesting that in the previous verses that I received from God by the casting of lots in which I did not preach a message, they line up with what I am preaching here now. On Thursday, October the 16th, I received Hosea chapter 1, which is describing Israel as a harlot that was once not a harlot, but went her own independent way from God. And in the book of Hosea, the first part of Hosea, the first three to four chapters, it describes God's plan. It is basically this summed up in a verse in Hosea that says this, that I will corner her. In essence, that's what it's saying. It's not the exact quote, but it's almost. I will bring her into the valley of Acre, which is trouble to make that a door of hope for her. And there she will cry out to me, and she will find me. Just like the prodigal son coming to the end of himself. And often, even in our lives as believers in our growth through trials, we're coming to the end of our own ways, and though we may be walking in God's ways in other ways, there is still the shells of hardness and deception that are falling off. But there is also this greater thing in God's plan in the, that he has for the nation of Israel, that he has for the nations of the world, where it says, for example, Paul the Apostle described it like this by the Holy Spirit. He said, God has foreknown the boundaries of the nation has allowed those boundaries to exist in those nations in order to corner them to the place where they would be brought to seek God and to find the truth. God has foreknown the boundaries of the nations and allowed it to be so that they would be cornered to seek God. That is, in essence, what Paul is saying in a verse when he's talking on the hill of Mars, I believe, in the city of Antioch in the book of Acts. And he describes God's working even in these things to bring us to a place like the prodigal son. Even we know this is true of the nation of Israel. I can't go into detail here, but in Zechariah chapter 12, we know it describes Israel's military might as being broken in the last days and two-thirds of the city being taken captive. And at that point, they cry out to God with all their heart and being. And God hears their cry and Christ returns and sets down his feet on the Mount of Olives with thousands and multitudes of saints. And the Mount of Olives splits in half by a powerful earthquake, which they now know is there. There's a fault going through the Mount of Olives, an earthquake fault. And it says in Zechariah 12 that Israel as a nation, it describes it this way, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. That's God speaking. They shall look on me, whom they have pierced. And it describes their conversion as a nation coming out of the deception of their own ways. 
The focus again is on the atoning work of Christ. They are looking upon the one whom they pierced and therein resulted in the atoning work of God for their sins, which they recognized then as their Messiah. And in Corinthians here, in Hosea, the other thing it describes, it says in Hosea chapter 2, that those that were in the place where it was said Israel is no longer his people, it will be said they are the sons of the living God. And I'll just even read the notes I made in the last uh four verses of Hosea chapter two. And I said this, when God brings his people that have gone in their own ways against him to complete failure and ruin, where they see they have been forsaken of God, then they will be cornered like the prodigal son to recognize their true life source and cry out for God's mercy and atoning sacrifice for them and will become his people. And it says in that passage very clearly, and it wouldn't hurt for me to just briefly, quickly turn to Isaiah chapter 2 and maybe just read more accurately that verse there in Hosea chapter 2. And we read this towards the end of that particular chapter. I believe it's Hosea chapter 2. Is it? Oh, it's Hosea chapter 1, pardon me for the verse I was looking for, although it's very tempting to read what was there. Hosea chapter 2. And we read this. Uh, it says here, in verse 10, yet the number of the children of Israel shall be as the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured nor numbered. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, ye are not my people, there it will be said unto them, ye are the sons of the living God. And I don't need to go on. And it says, Then shall the children of Judah and the children of Israel be gathered together and appoint themselves one head, and they shall come up out of the land. For great shall be the day of Jezreel, which means, by the way, Jezreel means it will be sown of God. Great will be the day when they are sown of God instead of doing their own sowing out of their own ways. Now, in this particular passage in Corinthians that we are dealing with here, I want to begin to just share more from that particular chapter. And I want to just read the commentary I made on verses 4 to 9. We are to seek that no one comes behind in any gift from God, such as utterance and knowledge that has the testimony of Jesus Christ, so that we might be ready for the coming of Christ with all blame. The calling of all in the church is unto fellowship with Jesus Christ. Paul in verses 4 to 9 is emphasizing the favor that he sees that God has on them. 
and he's thanking God for the gifts that they have of utterance and of knowledge that is coming with a strong testimony of Christ before others. He's emphasizing that it's very important that we don't be, that the gifts that God's given us are not diminished, but increased. Because it's part of what's involved in bearing fruit unto him and being prepared for the coming of the Lord. To being in a place where we are not blameless before God on the day when the Lord will return. Whether we pass away in the body or we actually are here when there's the literal return of Christ. Either way, we are at the place where we experience the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he emphasizes that God is faithful. The one that has called us is faithful. He's called us what? Into fellowship with Christ. And it is out of fellowship with Christ that come the genuine giftings of utterance, of knowledge, and many other gifts that can really be used to bless others and to build one another up and to bear fruit in God's name in this world. We are to stir those gifts up. We are to have a love in our heart that goes beyond ourselves and a desire to serve others. Christ was the example. He washed the disciples' feet and he said, as you've seen me do, so do. And it's as we learn to have such a love in our hearts for one another that we are literally impelled to, as it were, wash their feet with the word of God. That there comes genuine unity. But the source of this utterance, of this gifting, of this knowledge, is in love. It is in having a pure motive of genuine love for others, to see beyond their faults and the hardness because our heart is being kept in the place of softness before God out of the fear of God. It is out of the fear of God that there is the recognition of the greatness of God's mercy to us individually and thus of his love to us individually, which overflows in a thankfulness that seeks enlargement and sharing that love with others, that they may also enter into the same fellowship and liberty and wholeness that comes out of holiness. And so the gifts are used to undo the hardness in one another. I will never forget the testimony of a lady in a church I went to that told me how there was a time when she almost divorced her husband and was making plans to do it. She was so upset with him, he didn't seem very godly to her and so on. And God would keep challenging her to wash his feet with the towel in the washroom and she would resist. She finally responded to the prompting of God's spirit and humbled herself before her husband and went to wash his feet. And he broke down in tears and said, don't do it. But she did it, 
And he broke down in tears and she broke down in tears and the hardness was undone. And then from that time on, they knew a fellowship with one another and they are still married now 25 years later because that hardness was undone. The secret of undoing hardness is in recognizing the greatness of God's mercy to us so that we are sensitized to the love that God has to us and thus to one another to the point that we can humble ourselves before one another. Even admitting our faults, which may be more, much more or less than the other person's, in order to undo the hardness in their lives out of the love and appreciation and thankfulness that we have that God has forgiven us so much. The fear of God is a choice to recognize God as ultimately trustworthy, as having the quality I describe that can only contain unlimited in life and unlimited power, that is, a love that is totally pure with such integrity that there is the requirement of absolute judgment of, on the slightest that is contrary, and thus our own guilt before God and unworthiness. But also there must equally, out of that, recognition of the holiness or the integrity of God's law, be the recognition that out of that springs the mercy of God. For it is out of the foundation of God's holiness that there is the foundation for creativity without corruption that is ultimately manifested in God having a creativity that seeks to bring forth a corporate bride, a creativity that is totally motivated without corruption, a creativity that had such a capacity of love out of this purity of love that had the capacity to become a perfect atoning sacrifice. God himself, humbling himself more than us mere creatures, suffering more than us mere creatures, and taking judgment upon us that we deserved and absorbing it and conquering it as he did by his resurrection from the dead in Jesus Christ, who is God manifest in the flesh. And it is the recognition of the mercy of God. And even before Christ came, they recognized in the Father, the Son. Remember, the Lord appeared to Abraham as a theophany, which is the appearance of God in flesh. He appeared to Abraham. And he appeared to others. And they also recognized in the Father, there was the moral capacity of mercy because it was clearly taught throughout the Old Testament that God is the source of forgiveness, not the animal sacrifice. The animal sacrifice, they recognized, could cleanse the physical realm and allow God's presence to dwell with them, although not indwell them. But in that dwelling with them, they came into the saving knowledge of God you know, out of communion with his spirit. And that's a big topic I could get sidetracked on. 
but I'm not here to get into details describing that right now, but to say that I have lots of teaching on this. And in the book I'm writing, I'll be coming out with a lot on this. But Christ said, you know him for he dwells with you and shall be in you. Once our soul and spirit could be cleansed after Christ, God himself, who could only represent our soul and spirit, took judgment upon himself. Then our soul and spirit could be cleansed and he could indwell us. But before he dwelt with us and in that dwelling with them, they knew God because their spirit opened up like a closed fist to an open hand in a state of selfless trust because faith excludes the law of boasting or self-glory. Whatever you trust in is where you are putting your worth and your glory. And when you open up from that state of deception and self, like a closed fist of independence, like a black hole in outer space, trying to satisfy which can, itself with what was only made to be satisfied by the indwelling of God. When you open up and surrender in recognition that God has the moral capacity to forgive you because he has the moral capacity to take judgment upon himself, which was revealed ultimately in Jesus Christ, then the Spirit of God comes to dwell with your spirit and that other open hand representing the Spirit of God rests against the open hand representing your soul in a state of selfless trust. And that represents two hands in prayer and also a seed, which is the seed of the new divine nature, which is by the dwelling of the Spirit with our spirit in a state of trust in God. It says in First John, Whatsoever is born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Our faith is born of God, and I have just described the way it is born of God. The fear of God is the choice to recognize God for who he truly is, first in his holiness, and then out of that who he is in his mercy and thus his love to us, which means that we perceive God as ultimately trustworthy and reach out of that towards him in a state of selfless trust of a true cry from the heart that calls on God to cleanse us from our own ways of deception. That's how we are born again of the Spirit. Now, the next section in this passage of Scripture, in verses 10 to 16, I just made this statement. The church is to seek to be perfectly joined together in the same mind with the same judgment instead of being divided over issues such as who we like to identify with in leadership in the church. And that's what we find in verses 10 to 16 in this passage, that they were not mature as believers. They were putting their identity in the leadership, various main leaders in the church. So the one was saying, I'm a Paul. Another was saying, I'm a Peter the Apostle. And they were divided over these issues. Now, it is interesting that Christ said, if someone comes in their own name, you'll receive him. But because I come in my name, you won't receive me. Paul the Apostle also said, if I would come and be like the others, you would receive me. But when I come representing the name of Christ, the more I love you, the less I am loved. What is with this 
state of being that is contrary to God's purpose that must be done to enter into God's purpose individually and corporately. We must understand that the word name basically means expression to, of who we are to others. When it says that if we ask anything in the name of Christ, it shall be done, it means that we are in unity, not in our own interests and self-seeking motives, but with a totally pure motive that is sensitized to who God is in his being of love. A total purity of love. It is when we are in such unity that if we ask anything in his name, it is answered because we will never ask something that is to consume on our own lust, that is selfish, that is corrupt and self-seeking instead of seeking the highest good. Remember, love always seeks the highest good. And to be less is to be corrupt, to have destructibility in us. And so in this relationship, Paul the Apostle is emphasizing the importance of having the secret of unity prevail. He emphasizes that it's important to be together of this, and to speak the same thing, to seek to have unity. But it is also emphasized in Ephesians that we're to speak the truth in love. We're not here to conform to one another. If our identity is more in a personality than it is in our relationship with God, then we're not speaking the truth in love. What we have then is a counterfeit unity, a unity where we're all conforming to a particular personality that a group might identify with. And therein conforming to one another as well, more than in our identity with God and who he is. So we become like a bunch of Brits that all look the same and speak the same as our leader and as one another. And there's the loss of individuality. And so there's not the beautiful mosaic of genuine unity, but a homogenous counterfeit unity that does not display genuine unity. And it has to do with where we are putting our identity. And the tendency in human nature is to always put identity in a leader. The leader may be very spiritual, like the Apostle Paul or Peter in this example in the church, but we're still looking up to people too highly. This is the problem. When a person walks close with God, there is a tendency for people also, if the person is used in a very supernatural and powerful way, for people to look up to that person rather than to God. 
and to want to be one of the people that can be the right-hand person of that person or can be always noted to be part of or close to that person. And therein there can also be modal motives of self-glory from others. And so the root of a lot of these things is pride. The Word of God says in Proverbs that contention comes by pride. This unity that God wants has an understanding of identity in Christ as the head over the church. When people gather together to assemble in the body of Christ, it is important that they have respect under the leadership and love for the leadership. But it is also important that the leadership does not allow the people to put them, the leaders, on a pedestal. And to start to be focusing on them in a way that detracts from being conscious of Christ in the midst. Genuine leadership will speak with authority and zeal and power and will reprove and rebuke and exhort as the word of God commands, but will do it with humility. Paul did it with many tears and humbled himself before the body of Christ. And because he would humble himself, they the more he loved them by displaying the humility of Christ, the more there was an aversion and a tendency to not want to love him back because they wanted identity in his supernatural giftings and in who he was, and they wanted to kind of just be more conscious of him than Christ. God wants us to be those that are true shepherds, that are leaders in the body of Christ, that follow the example of the Apostle Paul, that are sensitive, that do not have a spirit of a control. The evidence when leadership is controlling and dictatorial or the other way where they're always apologetic and they don't reprove sin, you know that you have leadership that is putting their identity more in the people then in their relationship with God, and you know that the people are putting more of their identity in the leadership than in their relationship with God, and that they are coming more in their own personality and being than they are manifesting the being of Christ and vice versa with the congregation. And God is calling us as the body of Christ to repent of these things and there's a key in how to do this. How to seek to be of the same mind one with another without violating the integrity of genuine love for one another and for God. And how that is done is by coming to a place Whereas the body of Christ, we let go of controlling our own lives individually. The leader lets go of trying to control the church. Let me give you a verse that really exposes this. 
says in Corinthians, Paul the Apostle says this by the Holy Spirit, that God has so tempered the body together in such a way that he gives more abundant honor unto the part that lacks so that there should be no schism in the body of Christ. What does that mean? That means that when there's no control, when the leadership facilitates each member of the body to move in the gifts of the Spirit, remember, we're not to come behind in any gift, it says in this passage of Scripture, in 1 Corinthians 1. When the leadership does that, that means that a more abundant gifting can come on someone that isn't so charismatic and where human nature has a tendency to look up to them highly or to put identity in them more than in God. And so when that happens and a powerful gift of grace is allowed to be expressed through a member that isn't so attractive, it humbles those that tend to be looked up to. Pride comes by contention, it says in Proverbs. This undoes pride. When we repent of trying to be in control of our own lives, which works out to trying to control others as leaders and vice versa, the body of believers uh, putting too much identity in the leadership, and that results in them trying to control one another. How does that happen? Well, I've had I've been in churches where people come up and they say, oh, you should be part of this church and so on and so on. And what covering are you under? Am I saying it's wrong to be under spiritual leadership? No. It is wrong, though, when there's an understanding that our covering is under leadership more than our relationship with God. Our covering is Christ. It is our own unique individual relationship with Christ. Christ is our covering. Are you saying then that you can be an independent island unto yourself? And that God will protect you by your own little self? Well, if I have rebellion in my heart and I am carnal and I don't want to be one with brothers and sisters, I'm already deceived and God's going to put me into the valley of Achor to deal with me until I repent. And if I don't, I will be deceived to eternal destruction. Anyone, that is the case. But it doesn't have to do with my covering under someone else. It has to do with my own individual relationship with God first and then out of that having a sensitivity to leadership and to one another to recognize those that are truly examples that I can freely look up to, not out of some bondage of obligation. There are many churches that have you write a covenant to be part of the membership. That's not particularly wrong, but most of them have the cart before the horse. And that's because they don't have an understanding of genuine covenant, which is clearly revealed in the book of Zechariah. I don't think for time I will bother to turn to it. But in Zechariah, it describes the nation of Israel. And it has two, and, <clears throat> and Zechariah has two sticks. Oh, I suppose while I'm talking, I might try to find it, but it's hardly necessary. 
But it's in Zechariah, around Zechariah, I would say probably 11 or something like that. And I'm just going to see if I can quickly touch into it. But there's two sticks. Yes, it's in Zechariah 11. And it says, I took my staff, even beauty, and cut it asunder that I might break my covenant, which I made with all the people. And it was broken in that day, and so the poor of the flock that waited upon me knew that it was the Lord. And then it describes the other aspect of this covenant. It's interesting that it is in the context. Look at the next verse says. And I said unto them, if ye think good, give me my price and have not forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 pieces of silver. We know that was the betrayal of Christ on the cross. Their very Messiah, the one that they would look on, whom they have pierced. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it onto the potter a goodly price that I was priced out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut asunder mine other staff, even bands, that I might break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. So the first stick that is broken in genuine covenant is beauty. You see, it is when we see the beauty that comes out of relationship with God, out of holiness with God that people live in leadership, that we can then truly look up to them out of a liberty of heart that inspires us to be like them. So that we say, brother, I love you. Your life inspires me. I just, I, I just cannot help but want to tell you, I want to be in covenant with you because I see you're such an example. And that's the way true covenant is. It's the covenant that's the kind of covenant that Jonathan and David had. It was out of the love, the beauty they saw of God and one another that covenant was formed. And it's when we lose sight of our relationship with God and go our own way with control in the body of Christ, with denominationalism. Do you think that God is coming for a bride that's denominational? He wants his people to repent of these divisions, to thoroughly repent and cast off denominationalism. Is it possible for a whole church denomination to cast off their denominationalism, whether they'd be United Pentecostal, Pentecostal, Baptist, Methodist, or you name it? Yes, it is. And in these last days, he's calling his church to repent and come back into their first love. the key to coming out of the bondage of self-identity with one another, where we're more fearful of being rejected by one another in relation to our identity and a leader so that we become controlling of others and make them make covenants that are not truly out of attraction 
for one another in the love of God. Is to start our church services where the leadership lays on their faces and the congregation or kneels and cries out in humility before God, where they learn to be still and wait on God and be still and silent until they are in utter awe of who he is and sensitized to the greatness of his holiness and of his love, to the place where the hardness is broken, And the love, the baptism of God's love overflows. In this last end time revival, there will be a love that is overflowing and swallows up the barriers of division so that we will be called the generation of them that are restorers of the preach, restorers of the paths to dwell in, that the restitution of all things may take place in the restoration of the spiritual temple of God, of whom it says concerning Christ in Acts, whom the heavens must receive until the restitution of all things. Brothers and sisters, even in the physical and type, the time is soon now about to appear when the nation of Israel will rebuild her temple, which typifies the restoration of the spiritual temple of God that is going to form in every community and city around the world when we turn to him in true repentance and repent of our division and our denominationalism. And those sticks that have been broken of beauty are brought back where we worship God in the beauty of holiness and see one another out of that beauty that brings the covenant that is in liberty that is genuine and in spirit and in truth. I see that I preach too long and I must now maybe not fully finish this chapter. But I do want to just read the bit of notes that I did at the end here. Verses 17 to 20, I said the gospel is to be preached in a way that makes the atoning work of Christ on the cross effectual instead of the wisdom of words that would take away from the focus on the cross. And I'm here today to focus on Christ and him crucified. And I described the being of God as representing uh, a negative symbol in his holiness. And then out of that comes the plus the resurrection, the foundation from which springs creativity, which forms the plus symbol, which is the picture of the cross. And from the beginning of time, from the time of Adam and Eve till now, the gospel has been preached, which is this, that there is one God and that this God is holy and has provided a way of mercy that we can repent by him having within him the power to become a perfect atoning sacrifice and to have actually become it, which he has once and for all and only in Jesus Christ, the one and only full expression of himself. And that is where our focus is. Our fellowship is in focus around the atoning work of Jesus Christ, being filled with awe and thankfulness and worship out of God's love to us in his atoning work. Therein comes true wisdom and true power because the foundation of identity is now without corruption. 
even in the natural, people that do not have a source of consequence for right and wrong have no foundation. And the result is chaos. They're not even acknowledging that the universe that is a cause and effect universe results for every constructive initiation. There is a constructive consequence for every destructive initiation. There is a destructive consequence. They're not even acknowledging that. It is only in the being of who God is in the integrity of his love from which springs the mercy of his love in grace as well. And that is in the cross of Christ that springs a foundation from which we know our choices are effectual and are constructive unto greater meaning and greater purpose. If there's no foundation, then obviously there's a crumbling. Well, I'm not going to share much more. It is out of our relationship through Christ on the cross that springs wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And this brings glory to God because the trust is not focused on anything but the ultimate source who is God. God bless you. I thank you for listening to this very long message. Look forward to ministering again. Thank you for listening.